so the main the main idea as we get into the text today, as we as we dive in um, to this idea of making the same mistake twice or three times or four times, um, is that sometimes as we deal with the gospel, as we approach the gospel, as we approach the word of God, the saving knowledge of Christ and the truth that comes with him, like the biggest thing that gets in our way is us. And it is this recurring habit in our lives to make decisions or to hear things in funny ways or to look for something that isn't there or whatever and to like get in the way of the gospel changing us and, and of hearing and integrating this truth into our lives. And this is the main idea. So as we like burrow through the sermon Paul is going to preach here, this is the idea. Okay, so like, like if you're going to fall asleep, Jim, now's the time. Though John has been falling asleep in your place while you've been absent, so he's been keeping the torch lit. Um, <coughs> I have a bit of a cold. I apologize. Do not come near me. Um, it means I'm going to cough a little bit. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, Pamphylia, Pamphylia um, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. We're going to pause and just footnote right here. This is John Mark. Right. John Mark was introduced a few chapters ago. He joins them in their journey and their ministry work. And then very early on in Paul's first ministry missionary journey, he says, all right, guys, I'm out of here. We don't know why there have been literally thousands upon thousands of papers and books and arguments and everything else. And what they all boil down to is guesses. Um, it may be the case that he got sick because the area they're traveling through is swampy. He could have picked up malaria. Who knows? It could be that um, Paul, as of the previous chapter or the previous little little account and going forward, Paul becomes more and more in charge of the venture. And it may be the case that Mark objected to that or that it was just hard and he didn't want to do it. And so he went home. But Mark, John Mark leaves the story, and he comes back later, and there's all kinds of static around that and, and issue and problem, and, and we're not going to do that right now. But just FYI, John leaves. From Perga, they went to Pistia, Pisidian, Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers... If you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. Now, <laughs> these guys are what's called uh, diaspora Jews. They're in Greece right now, like in, in that sort of Asia Minor area, right? And um, these guys are diaspora, meaning that they're spread out. There are Jewish people all over the world by this point. They had traveled to all kinds of different cities and set up shop. There are synagogues in most of the cities that Paul will visit. Uh, with the exception of a couple like, um, uh, well, anyway, we're going to get into it. Um, but this is an instance where they are in a city where there's a huge population of Jewish people. And the fact that Paul shows up and they reach out to him and say, hey, you want to get up and speak? Is an indication that Paul probably knew some folks before he walked in the door and this was planned. Um, there's another pointer here in that Paul bypassed several major cities and went straight here. And so, like, it might be the case that he had planned on going because he had word passed to him or whatever. Again, it's very speculative, but, like, it's strongly suggested that they knew something about him because they invited him up to preach. It is very unusual 
I mean, well, yeah. I mean, you just don't invite people up front to speak, right? Like, I'm not going to say, all right, well, Sonny, time to preach the sermon. You want to come up? No? No, I'm, I'm joking, dude. Dude, <laughs> Like, we don't invite people, just invite people up off the cuff. And they were very initially open to hearing from Paul. It might be that he had a reputation. It might be that um, word of what they had been doing had gotten ahead of him. Whatever it was, they were anxious to hear what Paul had to say. So Paul gets up, and he preaches a sermon. Uh, standing up, Paul mentioned, or motioned with his hand and said, um, Fellow Israelites and Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Now, real quick, Gentiles who worship God, we've talked about this a couple times. We're going to see these guys over and over again. There are a lot of Gentiles who said, the Jewish faith makes sense to me, and I like what they teach. Um, the sort of licentiousness or like the, the just crazy behavior of a lot of the pagan faiths at the time made Jewish religion very attractive to a lot of Roman citizens. Because everybody, like, it becomes exhausting to live for, like, the garbage in the culture. Like, if you're just living for the moment or living for, like, like pleasures of the flesh or whatever, it becomes exhausting eventually. And it became a very attractive thing to a lot of Roman citizens. And so you get a lot of Gentiles who are tending. Um, they did not quite convert to the Jewish faith because it took years to convert. And circumcision made it kind of hard, right? Like, you didn't want to do that and so a lot of people are like yeah i'll do everything for but i won't do that um the god of the people of israel chose our ancestors he made the people prosper during their stay in egypt with mighty powers he led them out of that country for about 40 years he endured their conduct in the wilderness and he overthrew seven nations in canaan giving their land to his people as their inheritance all of this took about 450 years after this god gave them judges until the time of samuel the prophet then the people asked for a king and he gave them saul son of kish and the tribe of benjamin who ruled for 40 years so This is a popular format for sermons that we see in Acts before we move on. Um, And this popular format drives home this idea that God is in charge and God has guided them and his hand has been on them and God has been moving them in a direction throughout history. He mentions God put up with them in the desert, right? Because they mainly, all right, so Carly, you're going to discover this. I assume you're going somewhere to like Wally World. Uh, for your family vacation and on the drive the kids who are so excited and love you the moment you leave are going to begin whining about three seconds after you get on the highway and it will be can we use the bathroom can we get something to eat i'm bored he's touching me don't cross the line etc 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 and that's roughly what the time in the desert looks like the people complain the whole time they're like there's nothing to eat out here god's gonna starve us god hates us and then god gives them bread and then they eat the bread and they're like This is too much bread. Why isn't there more meat? And he gives them meat, and they complain about that. And then they complain about water, and they complain about this, and they complain about that. And they just complain, 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 just like a family vacation. Um, And God put up with it. But this is the first example. This is the mistake that they make, right? 
God is there. God is obvious. There is no doubting the fact that God is right there in front of him because there's like a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke and like food that appears on the ground everything, every day, first thing in the morning, right? And they become spoiled. Like I think my kids assume that food just falls out of the sky, right? And money just shows up in my wallet or Jess's wallet probably. Um, <coughs> um but they were spoiled, and they didn't grow, and they rejected God over and over and over and over again. And we see this as a pattern that follows through. Even mentioning Saul as king, who ruled for 40 years, Saul was a rejection of God. They rejected God in favor of a king. Um, and all of the Jewish audience would know this. And part of what he's emphasizing then is, God is in charge, God is taking care of you. The other part is, you guys have made this mistake before. Right? Like the mistake they made was rejecting God early on. And it's going to matter in a little bit. Now watch this. Actually, Paul isn't intentionally making, them, making this point. I think this is inherent in the text. I think it's authorial intent. Like I think as Luke is writing this, part of this sermon is to emphasize the fact that this is, this is the pattern. Um, and it's not a pattern after you do it enough times. After you do it for several millennia, it becomes a choice. Um, After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendant, God has brought to Israel the Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all of the people of Israel As John was completing his works, he said, Who do you suppose I am? I am not the one you are looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, real quick, (coughs) there are a few things that Paul is doing in this sermon, and it is possible that this is a condensed version. Everybody with me? He's citing Old Testament proofs. Now, there's not enough time to dig into the whole thing, but this is a super interesting, fun topic where if we look at the way the covenants progress in the Old Testament, they all move toward Jesus and toward the cross. And it's like this, this, you know, supernatural legal arrangement that God has. But in terms of David, who is a rock star to the Jewish people, um, God promised David, hey, a descendant of yours will be on the throne in Israel forever. And that is Jesus. And that's what Paul is referencing there. And every Jew in the room would know this. They're like, oh, that's what he was talking about. Um, and so he is citing Scripture, and he'll continue doing it. He is citing Scripture as like an evidence, as a witness of what he is saying. And then he cites John the Baptist. Why John the Baptist? Well, because John the Baptist, despite the fact that he was this local prophet, was really well known to the Jewish people. Like, John made a huge splash in the world, and they almost certainly had heard of him, and he was, like, like well-known. And he points to John the Baptist and says, hey, this guy you heard about, he pointed to Jesus. And he cited Jesus greater than him, not worthy to untie his sandal. Fellow, Christ, our fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophet that are read every Sabbath. 
Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. So, <coughs> he cites the big error. He says, listen, Jesus came. The, you know, the, the, the like, temple elite and the ruling authorities over like, the religious life of Jerusalem and like the Jewish people saw him. They met him. They talked to him. They saw him perform miracles. And then they rejected him and killed him because they were fulfilling the words of the prophets. They made a huge mistake. But Jesus actually said it over and over again when he was talking to him. He's like, hey, you're just like your fathers. You're going to, you know, like persecute the prophets, like just me, just like them. You, you know, they killed his prophets. You will kill me. This is what is going to happen. And then they did it. Um, and he points out the error, again, making the same mistake over and over again. But after a little while, it's not a mistake. It's a choice. Anybody have those, by the way? I'm going to quick aside here. Those little sins you go back to over and over and over again. And you think, I wish I could just get over this. Or I, you know, I just got to try really hard and then I'll stop doing this. And, but we have those. And they become a part of us. And Paul is preaching this sermon. He's pointing out, look, the, the Jewish leaders, they killed Jesus. They hung him on the cross. But God raised him. Um, and he was seen. So now we have witness to Scripture, and he's going to do more witness to Scripture. But then he also points out, he says, listen, there are all these guys who saw him. There are all these guys who interacted with him. Um, he doesn't mention himself, but Paul probably could have said, hey, I was there. Um, Barnabas, who's with him, is also an apostle, so he saw the risen Lord. Um, and so we have two factors here that come into play, and this is a really big deal. For the Jewish people, if you went on trial, right, you needed to have two witnesses for everything. And so when he testifies about Jesus, he points to his first witness, the scriptures. And then he points to his second witness, which is the apostles. He's saying, listen, God said it would happen. We saw it happen. This is it. And he, he presents a very compelling case that by Jewish standards is very, very compelling. Um, and actually, there's probably multiple guys there who saw the risen Lord. And so that's even more compelling. Um, <coughs> we tell you the good news, what God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled in us, their children, by raising up Jesus. Now, there's a double entendre, a play on words there. Um, he means raising up from the dead, but also raising him up and glorifying him. And so there's like this play on words. And Paul is kind of notorious for this. Paul is an amazing rhetorician, like our orator. He, not a great orator, actually. He's not a great public speaker, but he was really good at constructing arguments and putting words together. And this is an example of that where he's like, hey, he raised up Jesus. He glorified him. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, and today I have become your father. For every Jew in the room, every person raised as a, you know, as a student of the Torah, they would know this psalm. They would know that this was a coronation psalm. And they would know that this was an elevation, and it was pointing to David originally because it was a psalm of David. Um, but beyond that, it is about Christ. Um, and he 
argues it further. He says, God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God has said, I will give you the holy and sure blessing promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. <coughs> but David died, right? When da- now, when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead will not see decay. And so Paul is like constructing this argument. He says, listen, it starts with David. It's this promise he made him. And he said, you're my son. And then he said, your body will not see decay. But David died. And he goes on. He says, and now when David. Yep. Did it not jump? There it is. (coughs) Sorry. Everybody still with me? You awake, Jim? Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin. A justification you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. Now watch this. Where does he end? He ends with, guys, believe in Jesus. Follow Christ, and you are forgiven. Every sin, every failure, every misstep, every single one. That means that as a follower of Christ... The, the moment I decided I would follow Christ, by having faith in Christ alone, I was forgiven for every sin I had ever committed, was committing, or ever will commit. And, like, that's amazing. It means that no matter how far you run or how bad you screw up or what kind of rebellion or how gross your heart becomes, nothing, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And that is, it is... It is an offer that defies understanding. God's grace is so amazing in this. And it is so amazing that we have a habit of looking and saying, surely there's something more. Right? Anybody grow up in a home where they would say, you are saved by faith, but you have to do these things. You're saved by faith, but you better not do this. You are saved by faith if you, and like the church has done this for generations and generations where we want to add stuff because I have faith in Jesus and I'm forgiven. I am made brand new is too doggone easy, isn't it? If you don't do these things, you are not saved. But that's not what he's saying. He's like, listen, it's simple. Faith in Christ and you are justified. You're able to talk to God. You're able to be close with him. The law could never do that. But Christ did it. And then he says, he warns them, right? He says, listen, the mistake has been made over and over again. It was made before Christ. It was made before the exile. It was made in the desert. It was made by Adam and Eve, like this rebellion and this rejection of God. And now you're standing here. Don't do what the prophets did or are warned about. Don't do what the prophets said we would do. Don't look at it and reject it. Don't look at it and say, 
yeah, but, or did God really say, or whatever it is that we decide to say, don't make the mistake. And so that's where he finishes it. He finishes it with a push. He says, guys, you have to act on this. If it is true, you have to do something different. Um, I really love uh, popcorn from movie theaters. Um, But I love it because when I was a kid, popcorn from movie theaters was amazing. And then I remember, because I watched it on the news when it happened, coconut oil in movie theater popcorn has 10,000 calories per serving, and it will kill you. Movie theater popcorn is killing more people than smoking and everything else. And you know what happened? Movie theater popcorn stopped being made with coconut oil, and then it wasn't any good anymore. Like, it went from amazing to being not good. Anybody who's old enough remembers McDonald's fries, which used to be boy, or fried in beef fat. Oh. And they were so good. And then somebody realized, wait a minute, you're serving vegetarians beef fat fried potatoes? Like, yes, we're doing good things for them. But they changed it, and they've never been as good, right? You have to act on this truth. You know, movie theaters, you must act. McDonald's, you must act. And Paul is saying, listen, this is something so big, so mind-boggling, so earth-shaking. You have to act on it. You have to respond to it and don't respond the way the guy before you did respond right be wise (coughs) as paul and barnabas were leaving the synagogue the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next sabbath day when the congregation was dismissed many of the jews and devout converts to judaism followed paul and barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So they, they heard the message. They saw the witnesses in the word and in the people. And the evidence like presented to them was compelling. And they were like, we want to hear more of this. And some of them didn't just stop at, we want to hear more. Some of them said, I am in, this is it, right? That's impressive. It was a strong, positive response. They heard the gospel and responded until on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on them. When Paul, then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, we had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourself worthy of eternal life, we will turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed to eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high, or excuse me, incited, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from the region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. So real quick, what's happening here is the stumbling block that got in the way of them hearing the gospel was 
them. They looked around and they said, wait a second. God's promises are for us, right? This is our thing, not your thing. You may not share in it. There will be no, you know, taking our faith and putting it on them. Hey, I have followed the rules my whole life so I could know God. They don't get in without doing some of that. It's just too, gone, too doggone easy. They've got to work for it, right? Um, their envy and their jealousy and their pride, I think, is ultimately a big part of it. And there's probably a whole lot more to it. But they were open all the way until they saw the implications of it. And then it was, stop, 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 stop. We're not doing this. We will not include those people with us. And that's essentially what they said, right? Those people are not among us. They are not from us. They will not be a part of us, and we will not accept them. And so they garnered up opposition and chased them out of the area. (coughs) My experience in talking about Jesus with people over the years is the biggest obstacle most folks encounter in coming to know Christ or overcoming sin or what have you is our own selves um our hurt our pain our pride our desire to to live how we want um whatever it is like like we want to be we want it all and that's the nature of sin that was what was offered to adam and eve in the garden right if you eat of the fruit you'll become like god knowing the difference between good and evil, which is a big old trick, right? They didn't read the fine print, knowing the difference between good and evil. That's like knowing what it's like to burn your hand by sticking your hand in the deep path fryer. You know, it's a bad deal. Knowing what poison tastes like by eating it, you know, or knowing the poison will kill you by eating it. Um, And so they have become their own stumbling block. They have gotten in their own way. What are the big ideas? Like, what are the concepts behind this? Um, Well, first off, the text presents, like, a repeat of this mistake in Jerusalem, a repeat of the mistake that came before them. And that repeat is the big idea that is presented, I believe, by Luke. He's showing this, hey, look, Paul came and he preached to the Jews. He wanted to save the Jews. Paul comes back later and says, if I could go to hell myself and save them, I would. But I can't. The mistake that we make over and over again is the one that always gets us. And, like, we don't always see this in our own lives. Um, We don't always see that we make our own mistakes over and over and over and over and over again. I I have a handful of them I make over and over and over again, and I don't know how to fix them, right? I, you know, hey, I'm going to do this, and I get way over energetic about it, and I try to do too much all at once, and I get burnt out and frustrated, and I quit, right, honey? Um and I do it over and over again. I can't not do it. I, I should be able to not do it, but it's, it's a choice now. Um, it's a pattern. We live out our patterns. And in this case, the Jewish folks were doing it. In our own cases, there are things that will prevent us from following Christ that are obvious. I, our pride, our desire to, to visit those sites on the Internet. You know the ones, right? Love going to those sites. I don't. I, you know, once upon a time before I knew Jesus, I did. Lots of folks love going to those sites. It's like, man, I want to follow Jesus, but man, I really want to look at this stuff. Man, I really want to follow Jesus, but man, I really want to be comfortable. And Jesus keeps asking me to do things I don't want to do. Man, I really want to follow Jesus, but I don't really want to forgive people who are horrible. Right? 
man, I really want to follow Jesus, but it's too easy. You have to do these things too. We get in our own way. The message, the evidence, and the witness of the gospel um, were not what was rejected. Their reaction was based on their own hard hearts. And I'm convinced if you look at the story of Christ, if you look at the accounts of the people who followed him, like, like the accounts of the people who said, hey, Jesus was a real man. I saw Jesus. I knew him. He was crucified. I saw him raised from the dead. And then they went out and preached that story all over the world. And some of them were tortured to death. And they're like, just take it back. I'm like, no, I won't take it back. I would rather be tortured to death than say, I didn't see this. And that's evidence that's compelling. When you really look at the story of the Gospels and the story of Christ, it is so historically compelling. It is so strong a case but oftentimes we deny it because, like, because we're arrogant, because, we, because it's not cool, because it's not what we want, because we want to make people live a different way. Like That's a big thing right now where we see people reject the story of Christ makes you new, you are forgiven in favor of, you have to pay penance for these things. And that's not a new message. Like People have been saying that for years. If you don't work hard enough, you don't really get forgiven. If you don't you know, efface yourself and self-flagellate or beat yourself up all the time like you can't really be forgiven. That's a popular message right now. It's just not true. We don't reject Christ out of the truth of it. We reject Christ over what we want. I'm busy having fun. I'm too busy to deal with God right now. I'll do it on my deathbed. Our abandonment of the gospel or ignoring the call of Christ is always, always, always based on our sinful desires. There's always based on our desire to pursue our own thing. I know believers, that was a big thing for uh, Kierkegaard. He would watch the church where people would go to church their whole lives and they were never changed by the message. It made no impact on them. And honestly, it's because they were comfortable. It is an easy thing to be comfortable in the gospel, right? I am fine following Jesus as long as he doesn't ask me to dot, 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 right? I know folks like that. You know, who hate their dad because he was an awful, horrible person, but they could never pray for him or never believe that God would forgive him or never believe that he deserves anything but to burn in hell for all of forever because of their sinful desire to get revenge. And I'm not saying that, like, holding anger and bitterness in our hearts, like, like that's a product of things, but ultimately Christ calls us to put that stuff down, to step away from it. I used to do an illustration... <coughs> In, uh, when I worked at the home, I would take out a $50 bill and I would tell a kid, to, hey, put your fist out. Make a fist as hard as you can. And I would try to force the $50 bill into their hand. And the reality is the harder you hold on to your life, the harder you hold on to the, the things that are in the world, the less capable you are of opening your hand and receiving. You know, There are folks who will look at God and say, you know what? I believe that God, you know, is probably a real thing or a great idea, but I can't believe that God would allow people to die. I can't believe that God would punish people for their sins. I can't believe that hell would be a real thing. I can't believe that God would crucify Jesus to punish him in my place. Like, what kind of horrible child abuser God is that? Like, there are people who, they apply their own standards or their own beliefs or their own desires or their own whatever to God, and they come up saying God can't be real or God is a monster, or this or that or the other. And it's always about our own pride. It's always about, I don't want to do things this way. I want to do it my way. And it's a horrid, horrid thing. The purpose of the law, 
is to convict us of our sin. In the case of this story, this account, the Jewish people, I think they wanted the Gentiles to follow the law. It was a fight that went on in the church for a long time. They wanted the Gentiles to become like them in order to become like Christ. When we hear the law, when we hear sermons about the law, when we hear sermons that make us feel bad and step on our feet, the purpose of that is not to make us try harder. It's to help us know that we need Christ and we need to be forgiven through the gospel. And so we must always look to our own lives and look at our own hearts and scour and scrape and look for sin and blindness and all of this other stuff that gets in the way. Um, I, I'm doing a... a over the years, one of my least favorite things to do as a mechanic was to take gaskets off. You guys ever do this? You know why it's awful? How much gasket has to be left in order for your new one to leak? Like almost none. And so you've got to scrape and scrape and scrape and scrape. And you have that special tool. And you bust your knuckles and cut yourself with a little razor blade on it. And, you know, bang your head. And it takes forever and ever and ever. And it's all greasy and dirty anyway. You can't tell if it's really clean right. Like, but the problem is if you don't take off the old gasket, the new gasket will never take seat. And the truth is that the mistakes we make over and over again, our own pride, our own intellectual arrogance, our own, you know, desire for the flesh or whatever, these things have to be scoured out of us for the gospel to take root. When I step on your feet in a sermon, I'm not stepping on your feet so that you'll stand up and try harder. It's so that you'll turn and say, I need Christ. I need Christ. I need Christ. I can't do this on my own. I cannot follow the law. I can't try harder. Only the gospel will save me. We have to constantly ask if we're forcing our own preference onto Christ. We have to weigh our presuppositions. What do I mean by that? There are people who will say, that was a big thing actually. Um, the pastor I worked for in Indiana uh, was on the uh, committee that dealt with pastor misbehavior. And one of the most common things you'd hear from pastors who are cheating on their wives was... I do so much for God, surely he wouldn't give me problems with this. <laughs> I mean, anybody in their right mind can see through that, right? Like, yeah, no, God doesn't really want you to cheat on your wife or cheat with somebody else's wife. Like, you just can't do that. Like, dude, that's not okay. No, but God surely would let me. That's a presupposition. That's what I want, and I'm forcing it on God. And we do that. We force our politics on him. We force our desires. We force our, our stuff. Like, so we have to constantly back up and say, what am I doing? How am I overcoming Christ? Like, am I trying to force Christ into my politics? Am I trying to force Christ into my, my desire to punish people in the culture around me that I don't like? Am I trying to force Christ into my own comfort zone? That's the... Oh, the gospel. What is that? Um, is Jeremy here? Uh, the uh, gospel, the prosperity gospel. Never mind. You don't have to tell me. Prosperity gospel is that where people will stand up and preach. God wants you to be rich and Jesus owned a mansion. It's in the scriptures. Nope. God wants me to have a $10 million jet, not that crappy $4 million jet that I had to throw away. Also, not scriptural. That is forcing something into the gospel isn't there. Surely God would be okay with me getting drunk once in a while. Surely God would be okay with me, you know, sinning in this little way. Just this little thing. We force our presuppositions onto him. And it kills us. It's the same mistake. Submission of the gospel will sometimes require us to submit in hard and counterintuitive ways. There's a, Anne Rice is a person who I 
I have a very like huge amount of interest and focus on over the last few years. She's, she wrote a bunch of vampire novels, which is not my interest. She became a believer. And she became a believer despite the fact that like Christianity goes directly against a lot of things that she believes culturally. And she walked away from her faith for a little while, and then she came back and she wrote a book about it. And she said, you know what? The church, she's a Catholic, the church te- teaches things that I don't agree with about women. That, you know, the Catholic church, they don't, you know, there are certain things they teach. And she's like, I don't agree with that. And she says, but because I believe that God is real and I believe the Catholic church is what it is, I have to put aside what I think because it's God's deal. That's really easy when it's someone else. It's really hard when it's me. Right? That turn the other cheek thing only falls in certain circumstances. Pray for your enemy as only when... It's me that you're praying for. Right? Like, the call to follow Christ is a call to step over ourselves, to crucify ourselves, and to put our own desires and our own wants and our own things aside, and to look at the gospel seriously and saying, is this changing my life? Am I bearing fruit? Am I putting away my own sinful self in favor of becoming like Christ? This is what we are called to. This is what I'm putting out in front of you all today. Paul went and preached the gospel to the Jews on that day. And in the end, they decided our exclusiveness, our thing, our Jewishness is more important than this. We will not follow the gospel because of, because of the Gentiles. It wasn't about the Gentiles. It was about themselves. And oftentimes, we choose ourselves. I'm going to close in prayer. And if you feel challenged, if you feel driven, if you feel pushed this morning, you look and say, I don't bear fruit the way I should, or what have you, my challenge for you is to turn to the gospel, confess and be forgiven, and then be made new through the, through the love of Christ, through the blood of Christ. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinful man, and as I stand up and talk, I'm a hypocrite through and through. I know that I stumble and I fall, and I make the same dumb mistakes, the same dumb sins, the same dumb choices to rebel and pursue my own heart and my own desires um, over and over again. I pray that you would not let me get in the way. I pray that your hand would be on the lives of everybody here, that we would turn and follow Christ in everything that we are, that we would reject our sinful nature, that we would reject the things that get in the way, our, our pride and our fear of, of discomfort. Help us to be people who represent Christ, who love our neighbors, who preach the gospel faithfully, who care for the poor, and who look exactly like Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a good morning, folks. (coughs) Stay away from me. I don't feel good.